many better places to be on a sunny morning than Venice, by the side of a small canal. And that's where I have the privilege to be, in a city still largely empty of tourists. In Italy, so much is about the past, reflected in the glory of its Renaissance and Venetian paintings. I've been looking at these and enjoying the beautiful and complex fabrics the people are wearing in them and wondering, are textiles like that still made here? Can Italy still do that? Welcome to Haptic and Hue and season four of Tales of Textiles, called Threads of Survival. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver, interested in what cloth, in all its forms, tells us about ourselves as human beings. Textiles have an incredible power to talk to us if we can hear them. They comfort and console us create memories and define who we are. They can tell others what we think and more than anything they tell us what sort of society we live in. The Renaissance was a time of glorious cultural, artistic, political and economic rebirth across Europe following the Middle Ages and nowhere more so than in Italy with artists like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Botticelli, Titian, Raphael, Filippo Lippi, Fra Angelico, and Artemisia Gentileschi, to name just a few, producing art that we still love today. But take a look at these masterpieces, prized as part of our global heritage and you realize that there are other artists there whose work was also hugely skilled, well rewarded, and just as valued by the elite of the day. The princes and kings, duchesses and bishops who could afford to buy it. But the names of these spinners and dyers, these weavers and tailors are lost and their work has largely disintegrated. We can see it only at one remove, through paint. But Italian Renaissance art is dramatically enhanced by the quality of the rich and lustrous fabrics depicted. To put it another way, Renaissance art would be deeply impoverished without the movement, the colour and the pattern of the rich textiles they depict. Well, I think that artists look very carefully at the textiles that people wore and that were being produced around them. And it was a, and a source of enormous pride for the silk weaving centers. So it was, in, in some ways, um, an advertisement for their cities to, to, to show off the textiles that were produced in these places. That's Lisa Monas, an independent textile historian and author of the book Merchants, Princes and Painters. 
She points out that Italy at the time was simply better at many textile production processes. Well, we know they were very good at it because of the production that we see, the results that we can see. They had very good technical know-how. They were in the forefront of um, spinning technology for yarn. They had a long tradition of weaving and dyeing wool. And if you look at the early records in the sort of 14th century of the dyeing shades available for wool and for silk, I mean, they had many subtle shades in which they dyed their wool with lovely colors, which they called poetic names like apple blossom or dove or something like that, uh, where they're more restricted in silk. And gradually the silk industry caught up with that, but they did have these expert dyers already in place from that section of the industry. And the silk weaving technology, of course, had to catch up because for the very complex patterns, they needed draw looms that they hadn't needed for the wool. It was a question of constant innovation and getting ahead of the game. That was one factor. The other factor for the predominance of Italian silks was their incredible banking and trading system. And so you had long established colonies of Italians throughout Europe in major centers such as Bruges and Paris and London and in Spain as well, in Valencia and places like that. And so they made sure that their products were well represented in the market. And um, the Italians in the 15th and 16th centuries had quite a monopoly in supplying uh, the English court with, with silk. Both the painters and the people who sat for them used textiles to tell stories ones that we often need help to decode today. It was an age in which if you wore a hat trimmed with miniver, which was a specific kind of fur, it signified you were a knight or a doctor. If you wore pinks or reds, it showed you could afford these fantastically expensive dyes derived from insects. And of course, it was an era in which only people of a certain standing or wealth were allowed to wear silk or velvet. This was an age where decorum was very important and you dressed according to your status and otherwise you were penalised. And so you would not really have been permitted to wear silk and cloth of gold if you were from a lower class or if you had an insufficient income. If you were sufficiently rich, you could transcend this class barrier. There was some class mobility. And also, I have found there was a silk merchant in Florence in operating in the mid-15th century called Andrea Banchi. And in his accounts, it shows that some of his silk workers actually did buy silk for their wives, although they were not of sufficient rank to do so. And they would spend sums quite disproportionate to their salaries to try to give their wives some silk. Not very often and not very much, but they did. You can't make absolutes out of this, really. But as a general statement, they were too expensive for most people to wear. The restrictions really did prevent people from wearing things publicly. But on state occasions, and for particular important events for the civic life of a city-state, they would suspend the sumptuary laws so that people could wear things well beyond their rank and sometimes beyond their means in public. So these complex fabrics carried messages about status and power of different kinds. They might be used to glorify the wearer as a divine religious figure, 
or to show their status as a prince of power. Or maybe in an age before photography, the picture was used as a diplomatic tool where many reproductions of the portrait would be made to send round the courts of Europe. It was a picture like this that the English king, Henry VIII, famously saw before he agreed to marry his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. He clearly felt the artist had been far too kind to her when he set eyes upon her in the flesh. But in all these uses, cloth played a central role, and the more beautiful and sumptuous it looked, and the more difficult it was to make and extravagant it was to buy, the better it did its job. Almost the polar opposite of what we have today, when fabric is cheap and produced in bulk. So you would expect the artists of the Renaissance, who had to reproduce these complex fabrics, to keep a stock of them in their studios so they could get them right. No, for the simple reason that it was too expensive to be a studio prop. Even damask would have been regarded as a huge luxury if you see inventories of painters things they didn't own a lot of silk for a start they didn't wear silk themselves it would have been you know a foolish luxury to buy silks Neri di Bici who was one of the richest uh, painters in Florence in the second half of the uh, 14th century we have his ricordanze which are his daily accounts of expenses and he dressed himself and his children in very good quality wool and linen but they never wore silk. You were forbidden to wear silk under the sumptuary laws in Florence unless you belonged to certain classes or had a certain income. And for instance, people like doctors and uh, of law and of medicine and knights were exempt and could wear far better textiles than people like painters, for example, who wouldn't have been allowed. The exception for sometimes their patrons would give them silks to wear. So Andrea Mantegna, who worked in Mantua, was given silks by the ruler of Mantua to wear because it reflected well on his patron. So it's, it's a whole um, conundrum, really. But I, I'm sure that they didn't buy rich silks for props. Even getting access to see these fabrics was a problem. Painters had to take their chances where they could. People officiating in the church were exempt from sumptuary provisions while they were conducting mass. So the churches had an enormous stock of wonderful textiles. Some of them were made from the clothing of lay people, rich lay people, who gave them as donations to the church. So they didn't always have only secular motifs on clerical vestments. And um, artists, after all, were mainly employed to, to produce religious paintings and they would have had opportunities in the church to study the vestments and I'm sure that's one way. In another case, if you lived in a silk weaving centre, there were of course the shops of the silk uh, merchants, but in these shops the best textiles were kept locked away. They were so precious they were locked away carefully, but on days like in Florence, the Feast of St John the Baptist, they hung out these silks in a festive way. And also um, painters could have visited fairs and markets where silks were sold as well. So there were a variety of ways. And also if they were, uh, if they attended a procession, if they saw a bridal procession passing by, you, you, you had opportunities to see these silks. 
How often you've got the opportunity to study one carefully, I don't know. I love the image of painters on feast days, busy scribbling away, trying to get down every detail of the incredible fabrics they saw sweeping past, sometimes just for brief moments. So much of what we know about these fabrics comes down to us through paint, as the textiles themselves have often crumbled to dust. But we do know that weavers of complex material like velvet cloth of gold earned well. In the 15th century, their wage was the equivalent of a branch manager of one of the Medici's banks. And it's been a long time since a weaver earned the same as a bank manager. But these were truly fabrics of inequality, and we forget that at our peril. Not only were certain people forbidden to wear them, they were simply out of reach. Lisa Monas tells the story of Isabella d'Este of Milan, who in the 15th century asked her brother-in-law to buy her a velvet cloth of gold woven with special emblematic designs. Each yard of this precious fabric cost him more than the annual wage of a skilled labourer. He has indeed gone down in the records as a generous man. Those days have gone, but has the making of this type of glorious fabric disappeared too? Can human hands still fashion textiles like these? And is there a market for this and people still willing to pay for it. Consider that uh, uh, in the 16th century in Venice uh, were 6,000 looms for the production of the velvet, then thousands of people worked in the production of velvets and uh, people from uh, all the world come in Venice to buy the, 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 the Venetian uh, the Venetian velvet. Now we are the last. If you stop this kind of activity, you lose uh, you lose the uh, know-how, the, 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 the savoir-faire. Alberto Bevilacqua runs Luigi Bevilacqua in Venice, which was set up by Alberto's great-grandfather. It is now the last velvet hand-weaving studio in this city. You can find it in the Sante Croce district, where it has been since the 19th century. Although Bevilacquas have been involved with textiles in Venice for much longer than that. It's difficult. I have seen that, for example, in a picture of 1499, is written uh, Giacomo Bevilacqua Weaver. And uh, I have seen that our family uh, was in textile uh, for uh, uh, 6th century. The painting is by a pupil of Bellini's and it is called The Arrest of St Mark in the Synagogue. It was completed in 1499 and delightfully at the bottom there is a little scroll with names of those who commissioned and paid for it. Amongst them is Giacomo Bevilacqua, who gives his occupation 
as a weaver. Alberto also knows that some of his forefathers were silk dyers. Velvet weaving didn't start in Venice, but it did flourish here in the Renaissance and later. And Alberto is deeply aware of carrying on those skills. We are very proud to, to continue to continue this tradition. It is very important that there is a, um, the transmission of, uh, of the, the, the knowledge. Otherwise, you lose you lose the, the possibility. I have seen, for example, in French, there are some uh, factory like this. They have the same loom, but they have no people that are able to weaving. And then uh, you lose this. Uh... And for Alberto, it is unthinkable in a very Italian way, that he ends this tradition. He says simply, it is important to maintain the past. And this, for him, is explanation enough. All the hand weavers at Bevilacqua's Venice workshop are women, working on jacquard looms. When we were there, they were creating a variety of fabrics, some of them modern velvets like silk, leopard and tiger skin, which uses hundreds of subtly different shades of colour, all on different bobbins. Others were working on weave designs that date back to the Renaissance, but interpreted today in modern colours. Sylvia Longo has been a weaver here for more than 20 years. She was creating a velvet which only Bevilacqua can now produce commercially. The famous Sopraviso, which demands extraordinary skill of the weaver. An intense, simultaneous intelligence in your eyes, hands and feet. She was working with a cotton ground warp a supplementary pile warp of shocking pink silk to create the velvet pattern of fruits and leaves, and a warm, golden, slightly metallic silk weft. In making handwoven velvet, after every third pick, the velvet warp is cut by eye with a special razor to create the soft pile. But in a sopraviso, there are patches of cut an uncut weave, giving a 3D effect where the light falls on them differently. Machines can't do this, only trained and skilled human hands like Sylvia's. You can see a link to a video of Sylvia weaving this on the Haptic & Hue website. She produces around 50 centimetres or 20 inches a day and translated here by Francesca Di Stefani Sylvia explains why this gives her satisfaction. To see a perfect finished product and also because she feels that she has contributed to creating that type of pattern and you know so that's the most satisfying thing. Yeah it's her creature but she's because she's creating each millimeter to it so she sees it grow she's almost giving birth to it. So it's, since it's handmade, uh, there's bound to be imperfections here and there, 
but she's always trying to achieve perfection. The result is extraordinarily beautiful. These velvets are a joy to touch as the cut silk moves under your fingertips. And the price? Well, Bevilacqua's hand-woven Soparizzo velvets cost over 2,300 euros per metre, about the same in dollars. So where's the market for this? Who buys them? In the past, it was the noble families of Europe decorating their palaces and castles. There is Bevilacqua velvet in the White House and the Kremlin, and some very rich corporate offices. But today, it's more likely to be a line for one of the big couture houses to make into designer handbags or fancy menswear. Or perhaps a discreet commission from an interior designer working for a modern Medici. A successful singer, a celebrity, or an oil billionaire. Or someone who lucked out on a hedge fund. Sometimes someone wants a velvet just for them because they can have it. And Alberto believes people see the value in this. The future uh, now, I think it's very, how do you say In Italy we call it uh, pink, rose. I don't know if in English. <laughs> yes, it's... Uh, uh, because uh, I see that there is a, a return of interest in this uh, in this production. There is a, now there is people that uh, uh, don't uh, want the massive, uh, but want uh, some exclusive. Uh, you have to consider that uh, the very rich people lives uh, in castle in great palace. Now, for example. Uh, the younger rich people lives in the Manhattan, in London, in the Attici, in some. Yeah, yeah. And then it's important, for example, to make modern design with the old technique. And that is the combination that keeps this workshop alive. Handcraft married to modern colour and design. Something that Italy excels at. This is still the fabric of inequality, not on the same scale as it was in the Renaissance. No one is actually forbidden to wear it. If you can afford it, you can have it. But not many of us can. But the skills of women like Sylvia Longo endure because people are prepared to pay for what she produces. And to me, the world would be a poorer place without her ability to create, pick by pick, astonishingly beautiful fabric that can trace its origins back several centuries. It would be sad if we lost this knowledge, just as it would be sad if we lost the work of another family in a very different town in Italy. A couple of hours south of Venice, in a small Italian hilltop town close to the Adriatic, there's a unique textile survivor. Hidden away in the streets of Sant'Arcangelo de Romana. I'm at the Stamperia Marchi. Go inside and you'll find a print workshop that has been here 
nearly 400 years. And a giant linen press that looks like something Leonardo da Vinci might have designed. All of it has been in continuous use since the 1600s. We are not dealing with high luxury here, but something very different. This is a country craft, kept alive in the past by local Italian families who wanted to decorate the linen that they had hand-woven themselves with inexpensive and traditional printed designs. And more recently, it's been kept alive by the passion of the Maki family, who have kept this workshop and the skills it depends on going. The busy and colourful shop above ground at street level is filled with their beautiful prints, apples and pomegranates, twining ivy and pears. All the symbolic designs of Renaissance Italy are here, along with some much more modern designs of their own making. You pass through the shop and back into a dark cavern filled with rolls and rolls of antique Italian linen stored until they are needed. And in the centre of this room, built into an old wall, is a huge wooden mangle. Alfonso Marchi, father of the current family of artisans, tells us more. He is translated by Francesco Boni. Questa stanza all'epoca era this is a unique tool in all of Europe. It was built here in 1633 and at that time this room where we are standing right now uh, was located outside the city walls because uh, it, it's a, a very large space and it couldn't be included inside the tiny alleys of the, of the medieval town of that time. They regard themselves as the last guardians of this unique uh, heritage of ancient times that still works today. It's not fake, we can see and perceive it in front of us. Mangles have been used for many purposes, right back into the ancient civilizations. We know they were used by the Greeks and Romans as an ingenious way of moving loads or exerting very heavy pressure for minimum effort. In this case, the mangle is used to put huge pressure on woven linen or hemp to give it luster and shine and to flatten it. Believe me, it makes a real difference. Here, a person climbs right inside the giant wooden wheel and walks it round to lift the vast stones on top of the linen to flatten it. This is a glorious machine that Alfonso has come to love. Io amo questa macchina perché non so è della mia famiglia da sempre, ma he considers this mangle has a as a part. Uh, an essential part of his family, so it's like a relative to him. He played a very important role in preserving the mangle and the workshop after the war, when it was yeah, uh, everything or the ancient crafts were jeopardized and uh, were threatened to be replaced by more modern 
techniques of production. So alongside his, he's very keen on the job. He developed a very strong passion uh, as a child for what he, what his, hand, his father, his grandfather had been doing in previous centuries. But uh, along, alongside this, it's just its important role as savior of, of, this, of, of this ancient tradition who could be retained thanks to his commitment. And in a wonderful blend of ancient and modern that Italy is celebrated for. Alfonso's son, Gabriella, has trained for the New York Marathon on the Mangle. Gabriella's domain lies beyond the Mangle's cavern in a much lighter room at the back of the workshop. This is where the printing takes place and he is the master printer. There is a store of pearwood blocks, some of them dating back to the 16th century. These are works of art in themselves, drawing on local country patterns from this region, as well as Christian motifs and emblems of noble families. If a block wears out, Gabriella carves a new one exactly the same. Each block is inked with a mineral dye. One is made of rust from iron filings. And the origins of the of this of this dye, the recipe of this dye, is so old that its actual origin has been lost in time. So they cannot date back to a precise day or a precise name of the author that made it possible. It has been handed down and passed down a generation after generation, father to son. And then, once inked, the wood block is stamped onto the pressed linen or woven cotton. Gabriella loves his job, and he says every day is different. Ma ho cominciato qui in bottega praticamente da bambino, giocando con gli stampi. Began in his very childhood, very in the early childhood, as he played with, he would play with these molds and stamps following the, the hitting the example of his father and grandfather before him. And then he actually uh, got satisfaction from what he did and found out he, he loved the, the, family, the family's job, family's tradition. The two craft workshops, the Stamperia Marchi and Luigi Bevilacqua in Venice, are the polar opposites of each other. One caters to the rich metropolitan global elite and the other draws on the indigenous traditions of the country people of their area. But Alberto Bavilacqua and Alfonso Marchi would understand each other very well. They both share a passion to see complex human skills preserved and passed down to the next generation. Here's Alfonso Marchi. The, the workshop, workshop and the, the crafts here have been preserved and retained over, over time thanks to the, the tradition that were preserved and were handed down generation after generation. So it was the commitment of the, of the offspring that uh, didn't surrender and wanted to uh, carry out the, the, the same job at their as their ancestor and just not to be forgotten and forsaken in the lapsing of time. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. If you would like to find out more about either of these workshops or see pictures and videos of some of the processes in this podcast, find links to background reading or read a transcript. You'll find these resources at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It is an independent production which is supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee. If you would like to contribute, you'll find the button on our website at www.hapticandhugh.com. We'd like to thank everyone who's written an online review of Haptic and Hugh. These are intelligent, kind and generous, and we appreciate them enormously. We'd also like to thank the translators in Italy who worked hard to overcome the language barrier. Francesca Di Stefani and Francesco Boni both contributed a great deal to this episode. And of course, our thanks also go to the staff and management of Luigi Bevilacqua in Venice and the Stamperia Macchi in Sant'Arcangelo di Romagna for opening their doors, allowing us to come in and ask a lot of questions. Join us on the first Thursday of every month for a new episode of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. Next time, we'll be travelling up a creek on the coast of southern England to find out what they were smuggling from France in the dead of night. But I'll leave you this time with part of a poem by Lucy Larkham, an American poet of the 19th century who spent some of her life in the weaving mills of New England. All day she stands before her loom the flying shuttles come and go. By grassy fields and trees in bloom, she sees the winding river flow. And fancy shuttle flieth wide and faster than the waters glide. Is she entangled in her dreams like that fair weaver of Shalott, who left her mystic mirror's gleams to gaze on light Sir Lancelot? Her heart, a mirror sadly true, brings gloomier visions into view. I weave and weave the lifelong day. The woof is strong, the warp is good. I weave to be my mother's stay. I weave to win my daily food. But ever as I weave, saith he, the world of women haunteth me. The river glides along, one thread in nature's mesh, so beautiful. The stars are woven in, the red of sunrise, and the rain cloud dull. Each seems a separate wonder wrought, each blends with some more wondrous thought. So at the loom of life we weave our separate shreds that varying fall, some strained, some fair, and passing, leave to God the gathering up of all. In that full pattern wherein man 
works blindly out the eternal plan. In his vast work, for good or ill, the undone and the done he blends, with whatsoever woof we fill, to our weak hands his might he lends, and gives the threads beneath his eye the texture of eternity.